Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. As clinical psychologists, we think it's important to measure what we do. Ours is a science of human behaviour. Our therapies have been analysed for their proven benefits and we look for evidence to quantify the impact we have on people's lives. But for all the research and the new ways we have to treat mental health disorders, are our clients getting better faster or in larger numbers? Our guest today, Dr Aaron Frost, says that despite all our years of study and our new therapies, people are recovering from disorders at about the same rate as they did 50 years ago. And today we are going to talk to Aaron about how we can improve our success rate. Aaron Frost is a clinical psychologist, author, educator and director of Benchmark Psychology in Brisbane. Benchmark is described as an outcomes-informed practice and Aaron and his team have built systems to closely monitor their own performance in order to maximise the benefits for their clients. I have lots of questions for Aaron about using routine outcome measures and about being brave enough to put ourselves under the spotlight using deliberate practice methods. I really hope you enjoyed the show. So, welcome, Aaron, to the show. It's great to have you again. Great to speak with you again. Can we start by getting to know you a little bit? Some of the listeners will know you, but uh, some might not. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little background, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Aaron. I'm a, a clinical psychologist by training. Uh, I've been in practice for a little, actually, I'm hitting 20 years, um, sorry, 25 wow. years just shortly. Um, and um, I've been running a practice called Benchmark Psychology for just over 10. Benchmark is very mm-hmm. specific um, rather than being a specialised, or I know we can't use the word specialised, but rather than focusing on a particular disorder or a particular therapy type, we actually focus on therapy and excellence in therapy. So we're all about outcome measurement and tracking and accountability and um, quality assurance. Yes, with a name like Benchmark, it does rather sound that the focus is on quality of therapy, not uh, the sorts of therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, though, before before I press on, I might like to say that you do not look old enough to have been in practice for 25 years. That's a very, very kind thing to say, but there is a painting of me getting really unattractive up in a up in a um, attic somewhere. So it's a <laughs> Faustian deal. Yes, it's always important to have one of those. I think lots of older people in practice have one of those, and uh, we keep them under lock and key. So, what led you to this interest? You know, this very focused interest in deliberate practice, so that you would, you know, name your practice benchmark and and develop quite a large practice. I think that. Has it as its yeah. focus quality service delivery? Look, that's that's a really it's a really fascinating question, and I, I hate to get too autobiographical here, but my my background before I moved into clinical practice, so I did my clinical training, and then I moved into a role uh, as a research psychologist, and I worked in a large tertiary hospital. And the big thing that we did there in in my role was running the research and evaluation and quality assurance unit. So. We were very much about how do we get the best possible client outcomes? How do we reduce staff injuries? How do we improve the usage of electroconvulsive therapy? Like a range of different projects. We did about 50 projects over uh, the time that I was there, some of which were published, some of which will never be published. Um, But all of them just focused on the very real world application of scientific and psychological method to getting better results. 
And then I, you know, went back to my my true love, my true passion of seeing clients. So I left the research role. I started off in clinical work. Um, and I just realized that there was no accountability and no measurement and no no way of knowing whether I was doing a good job. And I was really kind of racked with, mm. with insecurity uh, around that. Mm. It's like, you know, my books are always full. Yes. But are they full because I'm a good receptionist or are they yes. full because I'm actually doing a good job? It seems that you came away from that very specific work and the research with a new lens with which to view clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. The, the The work that we did in the hospital was subject to national accreditation and there were expectations of meeting key performance indicators and minimum data sets and a range of other things. Now, not that being just driven by, you know, hitting particular metrics is the best way to do things, but you do begin to appreciate what those metrics create for you in terms of a scaffold. I'm going to come back to that, but I just want to make one observation that it seems to me that um, a lot of clinical psychs uh, uh, aren't particularly interested uh, in that area of work, you know, in the research area of work, by definition, or they might have chosen, you know, research in the career, and therefore, you know, we're not necessarily well-placed to have that lens with which to, to view practice, not that we don't want to do the best job we can, um, but that we don't have that kind of lens. I think your lens is a bit unique, actually, in you know the clinical world. I, I wouldn't say unique, but certainly rarer. I know you're not on your own. <laughs> most most <laughs> cl- clinicians, and, and I'll, I'll include my team too, you know, they, they did the research required to get their honours or get their masters Mm. Uh, and a few of them are really passionate about research and they get really excited about it and they go and read up on you know methods and statistics and that sort of thing Mm. most people that the day that they can file away to bash and confidel on a bookshelf and never think about it again that's a really happy day um, for them and and that's okay that's not a better or worse thing it's just a difference yes I'm thinking not as you said not unique but you know, less common than the average clinician, as you have said, that would, you know, file away that uh, thesis or theses, a couple of them, and never have to see the light of day again and never, ever conduct any more research. And I think, if, you know, it's perhaps another group of people who like reading uh, and will read and try and improve their knowledge and their practice. Yeah. And it's also quite difficult to get hold of articles, I might have to say, in private practice, unless you really try. No, and and I I think you're hitting on something really important there, that there is a real divide between the research articles that people have access to as part of a university and then what we have uh, access to out in the clinical world because in in the clinical world, you know, we we can't peek behind the paywall of Elsevier and Science Direct and all these other things. Mm. So Mm. we tend to see a handful of free publish uh, material and then we often see secondary sources. We see... You know, yes. a person like me who's giving the training workshop, who's read the original article, but then who's put their own spin on it for, for better and for worse that, you know, they might have synthesized and pulled together a whole literature really carefully, but that often hasn't been subject to critical peer review. It is just, you know, a person's opinion. Indeed. And I was, you know, I was thinking about uh, when I did my doctorate some years ago now, um, was a few years ago, but I had to write a paper on um, uh, ACT. Uh, mm. And I recall that, rather surprisingly and perhaps naively, there were, I think, and I'm, don't quote me on this, but maybe at the time some 10 empirical articles on ACT yeah. um, that I could review for my t- tiny meta-analysis at the time. 
but I think there are at least double the amount of books about how to practice ACT. A- absolutely. The, um... And I was surprised, surprised. Surely not. Surely there were going to be a lot of articles and a few books, but no, it was all how to do it. But there were, it really wasn't the evidence to support it. I know that's changed over time, but it did, se- it did send me a salutary message that there is not necessarily that kind of relationship between good evidence backing um, a, ther- a therapy that then gets promulgated in the, you know, in the therapeutic community. Well, in, in many ways it's kind of flipped in that, you know, Rogers, Carl Rogers didn't write his first book until he'd been practising for 30 years. Um, mm. You know, he'd, he'd done extensive research, he'd published, you know, the better of those trials and then he, you know, finally had the, hey, I've got it and I'm going to pull it together in, you know, on mm. becoming a person and, and then, you know, on counselling. Mm. Um, and, you know, similarly, some of the work of Beck and Ellis and certainly Beck more than Ellis, um, there's quite extensive empirical basis. And then the book comes out, which is the culmination. Actually, mm, we flipped yeah. that on its head over the course of the last couple of decades in that now we tend to have a small pilot study that looks promising. And then the book mm. comes out straight away, closely followed by mm. the training package, closely followed by the accreditation program, um, closely follow- followed by the re- pyramid scheme that goes with that accreditation program. <laughs> you cynic. So tell me all about uh, this notion of um, deliberate practice. Lead me through it. Yeah, look, what, what, I'm, what I'm really, and, and to get to deliberate practice, I, I think we need to start with what's not working because deliberate practice answers a problem. And the problem is it's twofold. Problem number one, is that outcomes in psychotherapy have been stagnant for close to 70 years. Wow. In any other condition, if I had cancer, I would rather be treated in 2023 or 2024 than 1963 or 1964. There is no other condition that there hasn't been absolutely leaps and bounds in terms of efficacy, in terms of tolerability, in terms of outcomes. Mm. Um, our outcomes have been stagnant for, for that entire time. The evidence is clear on that? The, the evidence is pretty solid. We've got multiple meta-analyses that have been conducted. Different independent reviews um, have looked at that. So we know that we're not getting better and we know that different methodologies don't get better outcomes. So CBT is not better than ACT. ACT is not better than EMDR. EMDR is not better than schema therapy. All of the therapies are about equal to each other. And any attempt that's been made to kind of match, well, this kind of therapist will get better results with this kind of therapy or this kind of patient will get better results with this kind of therapy, they've all failed fairly dismally. So we've got therapy is effective. 50 to 60% of people will get clinically significant improvement. That's great. That's a good outcome. But we've been resting on that outcome on our laurels for for 50 or 60 years. The The second part of that, um, is that we as individual practitioners are not getting better. Like when when I was trained, I laboured under the delusion that the people training me were better at therapy than I was. Um, mm. When we look at the outcome data, actually the opposite is true. Uh, Goldberg conducted the largest ever study that's been done at this. And I need to qualify this by saying it's a naturalistic study rather than a randomised control trial. So there are, you know, there's caveats here. Over 100, sorry, 170 therapists, over 6,500 patients, people who are 15 years of experience are no better than people who uh, have just come out of um, their training program. It's a complete flat line. In fact, it's a little bit worse than a flat line. It's a deterioration. People deteriorate 
by just less than 1% a year. That's frightening. That's really is frightening. As someone who's been practicing a while, I'm sure uh, I feel that way and I'm sure you do too. So, because we would have thought that, you know, everyone would have thought that if you practice for long enough, for a longer period of time, you upskill, you get better. But clearly it's not as, it's not that at all. So something's going on. Yeah. So what is going on? Yeah, look, we're, we're wiser. And, and I certainly, someone with 10 years of experience, I will, I will, um, back them for clinical decision making like those tough calls for when yeah. someone needs to be hospitalized when you need to breach confidentiality how do you respond to the subpoena what do you do with an APRA complaint like that is what experience helps you with but when you actually look at the outcome data experience doesn't translate into getting better outcomes and that's that's a that's a really important thing and it's humbling and it's depressing but that's a that's a really important kind of reality that we've got to grapple with in our field. Mm. Okay. All right, so we've got these two problems. It's the outcomes haven't improved in 70 years and if you can be practising for X number of years, 10, 15, 20, you don't necessarily get better outcomes. You might appear wiser and be more confident. Yep. Uh, but uh, in terms of the actual outcomes of the things that bring the clients to therapy, uh, you don't necessarily get better outcomes. And it doesn't matter what therapy you do, they're all much of a muchness in getting about the 50 to 60% improvement. Is that about where the problem is? Yeah, they're all much of a muchness. And, and with that in mind, why not just choose, you know, the cheapest um, that's got the most research evidence? And I never thought I would say go off and learn CBT because, you know, I, I was one of the people 20 years ago rebelling against the institution of CBT, but if they're all equal, why not go with the cheapest and easiest to learn that's got the largest evidence base? I leave that as a challenge rather than as a necessarily what I agree with. But it's a- Yeah, that stops me in my tracks as somebody who enjoys schema therapy and I have to say... Me too. Schema therapy, EMDR, uh, chair work, these are things that I find, uh, I guess, helpful. I think they're helpful. And then, and then, and here's, here's my, my little, you know, and th- this is, this is stirring as, as much as it is a thought experiment and, and anything else. Are those new things good for us or are they good for the client? Because you know what, I, I have been doing this for 20 years. I don't know how many downward arrows I've done. I don't know how many behavioral activation schedules I've done. I don't know how many exposure hierarchies I've done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I've done a lot of that. Um, is it exciting? You know, I, I'm, I'm a more recent convert, like, you know, about a decade ago into using kind of the more recent versions of motivational interviewing. It's fun. It's exciting. It gives me an intellectual challenge. But are my clients actually getting any benefit from the fact that I'm being um, stimulated and given that challenge? It's, it's still important for clinicians to be stimulated and interested and keep maintaining Absolutely, you know, their passion yeah. for the work, right? So that's not a bad thing, per se, surely. I, but uh, we still want to keep our eye on the prize, which is what are the outcomes, you know. Uh, Absolutely. I, I definitely find it sobering for some of my clients, particularly eating disorders clients and some other clients, you know, trauma clients. We routinely every week measure various things, and that's pretty con- confronting and humbling and focusing, you know, on keeping uh, – keeping your eye on what's going to go on and what's going to help the client, you know, with, with improvement. But I'm sure there's a lot of us who, you know, do different things and just keep the therapy modelling along. So anyway, let's return to the two problems. You've got these two problems. So tell me what's next then. You've got these difficulties. Now what? 
So in terms of what, what actually makes a difference, and it's really important to know that what I'm saying is, I think a recent description by Daryl Mann uh, described this as the, the research is preliminary, but it's strong. And the, the two papers that I'd refer to most specifically are the work by Daryl Chow from 2015 mm. um, and the more mm. recent work by um, Simon Goldberg, which I'm going to say is 2018, might be 2019. Uh, and these are kind of the largest uh, trials that have been done looking at the use of deliberate practice. Before we go on, I think it's really important to talk about what is deliberate practice. Yeah, please do. Yeah, a, a lot of people feel like, yeah, they're doing deliberate practice. What deliberate practice actually means, rather than learning a new therapy, it's not about going off and learning schema therapy or learning EMDR or learning IFS or learning whatever. It's actually about taking what you do and figuring out how you do it better. So rather than thinking like a therapist learning a new school of therapy, I want you to think more like a guitar player who's trying to get better at playing a piece of guitar or a ballerina who's trying to get better at uh, mastering a particular movement or a pottery mm-hmm. um, master who's trying to get better at doing the thing. And we use, in, in all fields of skill endeavour, we use like this four-stage cyclic thing. We act, so we do the thing, we reflect to look for places that we got it wrong, we theorise, uh, so we develop, develop theories as to, you know, how we could improve, and then we test those theories by doing it again. So we kind of work our way through, act, reflect, generalise, um, and then act again. So we work our way through that cycle. That's how top musicians get better. That's how top surgeons get better. And increasingly, the research tells us that this is how we get better at therapy because Daryl's research, so if we look at uh, the work that Daryl Chow did, he found that the biggest predictor of who was sitting in the top quartile of therapists in terms of overall outcomes and the rest was simply the number of hours that they had dedicated towards deliberate practice over the course of um, their career. Okay, so he used a timeline follow-back methodology and got people to look at what their CPD was and then divided that CPD into kind of deliberate practice activities. So in, in our context, if we think about reading a book on CBT is not deliberate practice. Mm-hmm. Watching a video of yourself doing CBT, making notes about how you might be able to do it better, coming up with a plan or a script or a different way of approaching it, and then videotaping yourself implementing that plan next week with a different client, and then taking that video to a supervisor, that's deliberate practice. Wow. At the end of the year, we're coming up. We're coming up to Christmas now, yes. at the end of the year, sitting down, rather than reflecting on doing your case notes and making sure all your GP letters are there, why not look at the 100 or 200 people that you saw over the course of the year and identify all the people who dropped out and write yourself mm. a list of those people and see if they've got any, any characteristics in common because that's deliberate practice. That's where we actually improve. That's where the improvement comes from. Okay, so a couple of things there. Uh... The, the training, the training of psychologists, uh, mm. clinical psychologists, particularly, uh, you're, I know you're in, you know, involved in that training. How much is deliberate yeah. practice training our, 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 our students, our graduate students getting? Because it kind of starts there, doesn't it? It's because it, it, it's a bit of a willingness 
there'll be a bit of filtering down for experienced clinicians. Some of them are more willing to do deliberate practice yeah. than others because it's a big change, right? It's a big change to have your work critiqued and to, to and to reflect and then change practice up again. That's that's one thing, right? For you know, uh, current mm. clinicians. I'm thinking that the bigger change, I could be wrong, is that it will come from our training institutions who, if their students are used to that kind of process, then maybe there's a better better hope for the future uh, generations of clinics to be doing. It's it's a really interesting question that you asked there. And and I'm I'm gonna say I don't know the answer to that because um my my experience uh, with the unis that I'm involved with um, is that there's a little bit of that, but it's very much supervisor dependent and very much kind of, you know, some of it's embedded quite deeply in the curriculum. Um, but I, I had the experience only a couple of weeks ago, I, I wrote a, you know, very brief little blog that you did. And, you know, I think our marketing people gave it a fairly controversial title along the lines of, you know, training is ineffective and we should stop doing it or, you know, what, whatever, um, you know, <laughs> click baby kind of stuff. Um, and it was interesting because I, I got a lot of reaction to that article and, and very polarised. Um, mm. from people who were like, yeah, of course, that's what we've been doing for 20 years. Why is anything you're saying at all controversial? Through to mm. other people going, oh, my God, I wish I'd been trained like that. I've never heard of this before. Mm. Can you give me some references? Mm. So mm. my my experience of that in the last couple of weeks has made me suspect that actually there's quite a, quite a range. I think the APAC standards are quite clear as to what the content is um, and what the competencies are that people need to reach as part of, um, you know, an, an accredited psychology program. But in terms of the process as to how you get there, I think there's a lot of individual yeah. variation. That, that, that's, that's my hunch. But, I'm, you know, if, if your listeners would like to correct me in the comments and, you know, tell me that there's some definitive yeah. research on it, I'd love to see that because I'm really fascinated by it. And before we get on to how, the, how we might, you know, do more be, be practicing more deliberately and uh, just wondering how other professions if are going if you want if you have any clues as to uh, i have a bit of a hunch at some other at the medicarriers for example i've got a bit of a hunch that they do a lot of they do a lot of performance in front of each other you know fishbowl exercises and so forth where they take turns at doing things demonstrating skills having a go and they get lots of feedback uh from each other my sense of having worked in various universities is that Glenn students um you know, we're not getting used to just doing things, having a go. Yep, that was pretty ordinary. Someone else have a go and I have another go. And just to be working towards competency. I just have a, I just have this love for this notion of competency that you start incompetent and that's cool. We're all incompetent together and gradually we reach competency rather than this pass-fail thing, which I think Absolutely. feels a bit like school, yeah, yeah. you know, undergraduate, you pass-fail. And Clinton students are all used to getting HDs and Ds, right? And so... And then they get to graduate school and the you know clinical masters and they there's an expectation that they get there in their first assignment or their first little practicum doing a, a pedesky hot cross bun they're going to do it beautifully and instead they get me or someone like you saying well that was pretty rubbish can we have another go and that's okay because we're expecting everyone to be pretty rubbish at that clinical stuff at the beginning and then gradually we move and in, you know into more and more competence so yeah I don't know I think language is important but I don't want to know what you think. No, absolutely, and and I, and I think it's it's a really fair comment. Like with with no critique or disrespect um, towards undergraduate psychology students, because I was totally. one of them. And at, at the end of undergraduate psychology, I was really competent and expert on ANAVAs. <laughs> yeah. I had a pretty good grasp of the true effect. I could name all of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how the <laughs> you know big theories of personality work. And I'd done one unit on counselling. Yeah, you know, I, I knew what an open end 
question was versus a closed-ended question. But, like, you can't say to that person, you know, me or the person who's coming through in 2024 in those shoes, go off and do a suicide risk assessment and I expect you to be confident. No, that's not fair. And that's, that's not a that's not a that's not a critique of them. That's like giving me a poll and saying, go and do a poll vault. Like that's, that's going to end badly unless someone you know, scaffolds it for me and teaches me. And, you know, <laughs> I have to say, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that poll example, but you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see pole vaulting coming. I have to say, but uh, that's okay. That's okay. I'm going to have a little laugh now and get, and then refocus. But yes, I agree with you that, uh, you know, there's, there's absolutely a place for the undergraduate training. Super important. You're going to get there's so much to learn, right? But, but going, and then, going to going to the other part of your question, which was about what yeah. do other professions do, I think, and, and this is why I'll, I'll expose my Freudian roots here. Freud called psychology the impossible profession, and let me let me give you an, an example of why. I was doing a, I was doing a keynote for a bunch of medicos um, recently as part of their you know medical get together thing. And I was training them in a particular, doesn't matter what therapeutic technique, but they were being trained in a you know, very specific communication technique. And I was having a chat to one of the other uh, stream facilitators as to what she was doing. And she'd been up all night sewing frozen peas into pig's ears. And I said, what, is that a recreational thing you do? She's like, no, no, I've got like, you know, 100 pig's ears. And she'd basically nicked open the epidermis with a scalpel, slipped in a mm. frozen pea, sewed it up. And she said, because when they thaw... They've got a very similar consistencies to assist, and this is what I need all of these um, guys and girls to be able to do tomorrow. They need to be able to basically look at the other side of that pig's ear and they need to be able to excise the cyst cleanly and give a clean wound. Now, the thing is, for the person who fails that, you can tell them, go and buy 100 pig's ears and 100 frozen peas and keep practising until you get better. Yes. That's going to take you 10 minutes each time you practise that. Each time we practice, it's one whole session or one whole client or one whole course of therapy. So the golf pro gets to practice their swing, each swing. The pig's, the pig's ear excision person gets to practice one pig <laughs> at a time. We practice mm. one client at a time, and that's, mm. it's a much slower iterative process. In fact, um, Goldberg, who has conducted the largest study of the use of deliberate practice, doesn't promise miracles um, you know, it's not like when a new therapy comes along and says you're going to be 100 times better within five minutes. Uh, actually, deliberate practice will make you roughly, and the statisticians are going to hate that I'm bastardising the numbers in this way, but it will make, make you roughly 5% better every year. Mm. Now, that might not sound like much, but over the course of a decade, that's a 50% better therapist, as opposed to mm. carrying on the way we do, where we deteriorate by 0.6%, so mm. we're going to be six percent worse in ten years versus fifty percent better in ten years. So what's a five percent increase in the therapist? Does that translate into some sort of comparable improvement in cl- clinical outcomes? Oh, great! That, that's what I'm talking about. Sorry, really good question. The dependent variable that I'm talking about here is clinical outcomes. So five percent okay. better in terms of overall effect size for the client. Ah, case. Okay. So it's the outcomes that are getting better and better each time as the clinician has more is more deliberate in the way they're practicing, seeking, getting and real time uh, feedback. We will come to that. So where are yeah. we up to now? Is this is this where we talk about where this stuff looks, what it looks like in practice? Because I'm pretty excited to hear how that might change my own practice. Actually, no, absolutely. Look, um, and and for the for those of you who who know me, 
you'll know that I've had an interest in routine outcome measurement, feedback informed therapy, measurement based care, whatever you want to call it for, for a long time. Uh, and deliberate practice is a close cousin, but not the same thing. The research mm-hmm. is pretty clear um, on measuring outcomes. If we simply measure outcomes and adjust our therapy based upon the people who are not improving. So, if, you know, if we've been doing CBT with a person for six sessions and they're not getting any better, there's a really good chance that another six sessions is not going to lead to any gains. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. measurement-based care or routine outcome measurement just means using the data to identify where the therapy might be falling down and making adjustments based on that. The data is really clear. You're going to get a between 20 and 40% overall improvement in effect size. And that's that's been replicated by a lot of different studies. That's well established. Um, really, that's just a quality assurance mechanism. That's just basically okay. allowing us to identify the biggest variances and the biggest problems in our therapeutic work and to improve them. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about how that might look, you know, in a day-to-day life of a clinician what, what, what routine outcome measurement looks like is just the client comes in having done a questionnaire. If they haven't done a questionnaire, they get given a questionnaire. And then you look at that questionnaire and then you look at the overall results of their trend over the course of their therapy. So maybe they've been with you for three sessions. Maybe they've been with you for 10 sessions. And before you go into the next session, therapy functions as a test of its own hypothesis. So if you believe that this client has negative cognitions and you've done some cognitive therapy with them to adjust those cognitions, that's a hypothesis. The test of that hypothesis is did they adjust their cognitions and did it lead to them getting better? Mm. So if they adjusted Mm. their cognitions and their overall symptom level Mm. either flatlined or deteriorated, then your hypothesis was wrong and you need to go back to the drawing board and reformulate, re-diagnose, you know, get get your approach correct. So routine outcome measurement is just that process, just being kind of hypothesis-driven and being mm-hmm. very clear, we expect that everyone is going to be getting better. And if they're not getting better, then that's something that we should be looking at and actually going about it. The really fascinating thing about routine outcome measurement, if it's not fascinating enough that you can get 20 to 40% improvement, you know, like that, if that's not fascinating enough for you, the fascinating twist is that if you stop measuring, you deteriorate back to baseline within a year. Okay, the data is really clear on that. There is a magic to having the measurement and having the accountability. And as soon as you stop doing it, you go back to baseline. And the analogy that I use, if, if, this, is, um, if this is helpful to people to have this kind of visual metaphor in their head, Imagine going bumper bowling. If you've ever been 10-pin bowling and taken a kid, they can put the little bumper rails up for you. Yes, yes, I need them when I bowl. I'm terrible. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, if if I go bowling, and I I can't bowl, if I go bowling, you know, once every two or three years like I do, you know, a couple of beers, I'm off to the 10-pin bowling alley with some friends, I'm going to get a score of like 60 or 70 because I'm bad at it and I'm going to put the ball in the gutter. <laughs> if they put the rails up, my score is going to automatically go up to like 80 or 90 because I'm not putting the ball right. in the gutter anymore. Right. But if they take the rails down, I'm going to start putting it back in the gutter again. So I'm going to start making those mistakes. The metaphor there is client dropout, clients getting disengagement, clients having therapeutic, fa- uh, sorry, empathic fails, et cetera, et cetera. When yeah. we put the rails up, 
we reduce the number of those fails. When we take them down, we, um, we go back to deteriorating. Now, the difference is a person who's actually going to learn how to bowl doesn't need the rails anymore because they don't put it in the gutter. If you go through the deliberate practice process of learning how to be a 10-pin bowler and you're good at that, those rails don't matter anymore. So deliberate practice, you need the measurement because you need the numbers to know whether you're doing a good job or not and whether your experiments are actually working and whether you're getting better outcomes. But deliberate practice is actually working on intrinsically getting better at what you're doing and not reliant, being reliant yeah. on the guardrails anymore. I don't know, I want any minute now I'm going to talk about those details, but I'm want to just I'm visualizing these things in you know in case notes and and being a person who loves stationery, I'm not re yet ready to give up my paper folders uh, for most of the time, in spite of the frustration of my staff. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm imagining in folders, uh, you know, client folders, uh, specific uh, problematic problem uh, outcome measures that are used, you know, to measure. Yeah. Every week, if not every other week, okay. Um, or, or every session, because obviously, yeah, yeah. not everyone's on a weekly session, but a weekly schedule, but yeah, every right. session. Yeah, just before, as they sit down, do those, and that those are scored, and then up, and then plotted, if you yeah. like. Um, I like a good graph myself, so plotted in a graph that sits at the front of a client file, and it can be shared collaboratively with the client as to how they're progressing or not. Re replace all of the things that you said with iPads and electronic charts and, you know, sections, sections <laughs> of a on. file rather than at the front of a file Steady and everything on. that is true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's next year's job for me, okay? But it's, given the paper queen that I am, essentially we're talking about the same thing for routine outcome. Absolutely. And, and in fact, when, when I started doing that, and that was back in 2006, that's exactly what I did. So, yes, we lived in okay. the Miller envelope world with, I think they're called spaghetti strap kind of plastic clippy <laughs> file yes. thing. And, yes, I used to have a hand-drawn chart sitting at the front of every file and each week yeah. I'd put a new dot in there based right. on it, which I thought I was super yeah. fancy because I'd rapidly type them into an Excel spreadsheet that would auto-score it for me. And and in two thousand and six, that was that was a forerunner move. But obviously, yes, we've moved you were a forerunner. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing, Aaron. So don't be ashamed of that, because I'm not going to be ashamed of mine either. My paper. I know there are paper queens out there who, uh, and kings out there who are twenty years younger than me. So I'm I'm not alone. I'm not going to be shamed by my my preference for paper at this point. All right, let's get onto the how the how to of deliberate practice. Tell us tell us what we should be doing. What's going to be good for our clients? Good for our practice. Yeah, so the first thing you need to do is to find a supervisor and a supervisor who's willing to act as a coach and a mentor. There is a difference between okay. clinical supervision and deliberate practice supervision. So clinical supervision is I've got this client that I'm confused about and I've tried doing this with them and it's not working. What should I do next? Deliberate practice supervision is I've looked at all of my outcome data and I've got a 40% dropout rate and a Cohen's D of 0.6 and I would like to improve both of those two metrics. Can you help me identify what are the key areas in my practice? And then as to what to do, mm. I would say that that's really a dyadic question for both the supervisor and the supervisee to look at the data, look at some videos, and develop hypotheses. So can I give a brief example? This mm. is two, two of my registrars recently. Please. Um, and Please. The, these are two registrars who both had the same problem but for different reasons. The problem that they had was dropout. 
So both of them had a dropout rate sitting at close to 60%. So our definition of dropout rate is people who never make the third session. So 60% of mm-hmm. their clients are not making it to the third session. Now, a normal dropout rate is 30. That's the, the average for psychology. And actually, if you look in the, if you look in the Medicare data, it, it, it looks like that too. We, we aim at benchmark for more like a 20% dropout rate. So these, these guys both had significantly higher um, than the average dropout rate. <clears throat> now, in some places, that would be a cause for alarm and concern and criticism and castigation and a whole range of different things. For us, it's just I'm, I'm glad that they know and I'm glad that we know because now we can do something about it. So deliberate practice for both of them is, hey, you've got mm-hmm. a problem. Your dropout rate is too high. What are we going to do to fix that problem. And when I sat down and looked at their data, there wasn't a pattern. It's not like all of their men were dropping out or all of their kids were dropping out. It seemed like it was randomly distributed. So the next thing as a supervisor is, can I watch some videos of your first sessions? And the two of them had completely different problems. Registrar A, when I looked at the videos um, of her first sessions, the first 10 minutes was just confused and, you know, kind of, hey, how are you doing today? What would you like to talk about? By the way, let me explain how confidentiality works. And by the way, what symptoms have you got? Oh, and I might need to breach confidentiality if you're suicidal. Like it was this very confused, welcoming the client, setting the frame, talking about ethics and confidentiality, but no clear sense as to how how the, the session was starting and making the person feel safe. And you could see watching okay. sessions, the clients disengaging over that first 10 minutes. And then she really had to work really hard to kind of get them back in. So for her, deliberate practice was, I want you to write a script for how you're going to introduce this confidentiality stuff. And then you and I are going to make it shorter. And then you're going to try it on 10 clients and you're going to show me a video yeah, of a bad one. And then we're going to do it again. And then we're going to do it again until you get your dropout right down. The other person... Yep. Uh, it was the end of the sessions. Her sessions kind of ended with, right, uh, looks like we're out of time now. I'll see you next week. Um, without any really clear, why will you see me next week? How would it good, be good to see you next week? What, what benefits will flow in my direction if I see you next mm. week? What mm. will therapy look like? What will we be doing next week? There wasn't any kind of scaffolding of why do we do that? So both of them the focus of deliberate practice was actually first off identifying a quantitative problem and then secondly hypothesizing what solutions were because I might think that the script for introducing ethics and confidentiality works really well for me but they might deliver and it it doesn't work for them so they need to keep Mm -hmm. iterating so anyway the, the point is with both of them we got their dropout rate into the kind of early 20s over the course of about a six month period so that to me is what practice looks like and depending on how how gross the problem is how how obvious the problem is depends on you know how quickly you can kind of fix it because if you're looking for that five percent gain um there's subtler improvements and it takes a longer time to see a five percent gain if you're looking at improving your dropout rate from 60 percent to 20 percent you can kind of see that quite quickly like it only takes a couple weeks to run each experiment Yes, indeed. I was thinking about how, um, as you know, either running a business or you know, as a sole pr- practitioner, um, you might be looking at your own data and and starting yeah. out by thinking 
you're either thinking about your um, dropout rate, that seems more that seems more tangible than gee, I need to be a better therapist in a way that's different from learning a new skill. I'm not quite there in my head yet, I guess, but I'm there with the numbers. Okay, there's a dropout rate of sixty percent. What am I going to do about that? Yeah, and and drop dropout's a really great example. Like you know, we, we look at all, all of the business coach gurus who are out there at the moment telling you how to run a better better practice, and everyone's teaching you how to you know drum up referrals. Stop focusing on drumming up referrals and start focusing on keeping the people that you've got. Like a thirty percent dropout rate, that's not good for your Google rankings. That's not good for your word of mouth rankings. That's not good for marketing yes. or business you know it, this stuff has the virtue of being good for the client as well as being good for your bottom line as a practice because we actually don't spend serious money on marketing and drumming up referrals because we hang on to the clients that we've got that's the it's it's just a different mindset and it seems then it could be in this instance of you talked about here the examples you've given here could be potentially a moderately easy fix because if, you, yeah. if you're talking about, you know, the video, watching a video and noticing this confusion at the beginning that that your staff member might have gone, oh, yeah, I had no idea that it was like that. And, yeah, okay, that's that's something I can fix. Yeah. You know, it's a safe environment with you. It's supportive. You know, you're not in and so make that change and then things start to roll along quite happily with the, the therapeutic knowledge they have is great and they're teaching the skills, et cetera, readily but those little kind of process issues almost in that example anyhow absolutely and, and as as you as you get better at what you're doing quantitatively the improvements become smaller and smaller you're not you're not focusing on a dropout problem anymore or you're not focusing on a you know percentage of clients deteriorating problem or a um, percentage of clients who are not making full gains by the way i find that a really helpful way of thinking about things is thinking distributionally we often think about the individual client in front of you, whereas actually if you're looking from a deliberate practice point of view, you need to think distributionally. And I think about four quadrants. What percentage of people got worse? What percentage of people dropped out? What percentage of people made progress that wasn't clinically significant? And then what percentage of people uh, made clinically significant progress? Because every therapist has those same four quadrants. And the difference between the super shrinks and the also-rans is just the percentage of people in those quadrants. If you've got 50% of people making clinically uh, significant change, which is huge, by the way, but you've also got 20% of people deteriorating, your overall effect size is not going to be fantastic. You need to work on detecting deterioration and then doing something different. Likewise, if you've got 50% of people making clinically significant change, but then 40% dropping out, your effect size is not going to be great. So actually the starting point is to think about those four quadrants. Think about the people who are making great change. Think about the people who are making a little bit of change and what do we do to move them from a little bit of change to a lot of change. Think about the people who are dropping out and what do we do to keep them in. Um, if, if they're appropriate, obviously there shouldn't ever be a zero dropout rate because not everyone is right for you or mm. right for therapy. Um, and then think about the people who are deteriorating. And then the plan has to be individual. And then all of your activities for the year, like Cybar recommends, all of your activities for the year should be based around the goal that you're trying to hit. But what I would say is rather than the goal that most of us write, which is I want to learn how to do chair work or I want to learn how to do EMDR, the goal should be 
I want to learn how to improve my effect size for my clients with trauma. And that might involve chair work or that might involve EMDR or it might involve a new therapeutic technique, but technique is only contributing 5 to 15% of the overall variance. It's more likely bigger improvements can be found in other areas of your therapeutic practice. So I'm wondering, just talk at least through how we might, most of clinical psychiatry, as we know, are in the sole practice. So how might that happen? How might we do that, you know, with our, our own caseload? Can you talk our listeners through that? Yeah, so I think the, the starting point is actually chart audit. I think as a, as a routine thing that we, we should be doing. So from, from just a Medicare compliance point of view, at least on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, you should be sitting down and making sure that you write those Medicare closure letters. I think the next step beyond that is sticking them all in a spreadsheet and just writing down, you know, John Smith, male, 36, major depression, 10 points of change, 15 sessions, left because didn't feel like they were getting any benefit anymore. Sarah Mm. Smith, 22, eating disorder, Mm. treated Mm. using uh, interpersonal therapy, left after three sessions, zero gains, uh, conflict with mother, um, you know, mother disengaged from therapy process. Because then over the course of that auditing, you will start to see clusters and patterns Mm. and that should be chasing is where do we pick up the gains in those clusters and patterns okay all right that's as a starting point and i'm imagining that you've got some resources available you you know you guys have put those things together and so so the the two things so um actually for for free um my my friend and colleague and someone i've already mentioned here daryl chow wrote a thing called the taxonomy of deliberate practice um, which I absolutely think everyone should have a copy of um, and you should have a look at Daryl's work. I think the book that myself, Kay, uh, Kay Frankham, uh, Ray Lynn, uh, Daryl and Nathan uh, wrote last year, which is called Creating Impact, um, that's got some really great chapters in there about deliberate practice. Um, I think that's worth looking at. And if you really want to go deep in the deliberate practice stuff, I guess I'd start following um I know Daryl Mahon, M-A-H-O-N, who's an Irish uh, researcher, very active on LinkedIn. I'd start following Daryl's work. Uh, And Tony Ruthmania. And I'm not even going to try and spell Ruthmania. You'll see Tony's name popping up um, fairly regularly and I'd start following his work as well. Okay. So the taxonomy thing, uh, looking at at that so you can be focusing on our own practice and uh, looking at a, a client audit of, client, of types and, yeah, working out what's happening with our clients and seeing, therefore, which where we, where do we go from there, what do we need to change? And then it, once we've done that, which seems like a bit of effort in itself, then it seems like there's going for that next level, which is around supervision, you know, or the, or the deliberate practice type supervisor who's, asking the kind of questions about practice in a way and skill-based that, that you're not getting from your kind of routine supervision. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, again, the, the key to improvement is sometimes new technique but rarely. Um, new technique is important to keep us engaged and keep us interested, but in terms of clients, 
more often than not, it's about the execution of technique. It's about the the ways that we say things that get people offside or the ways that we end sessions or the ways that we assign homework. These are all yeah. of the things that we can, for most people, that's where the real gains are going to be found. So let me just, I'm thinking out loud here, I'm imagining, say the low dropout rates are low, so that's not an issue because I did, when I was reading a little bit in preparation that uh, you know, Goldberg was talking about, is it Goldberg? Yeah, I was talking about, you know, the, the therapists who've been in practice for a while, their dropout rates are often kind of lower than newer clinicians. So they've mastered mm. that kind of yep. stuff around getting the beginning of the session right and the end of the closing off right. They've got all that kind of pattern going on and the therapy is okay maybe, but wanting to improve the therapeutic outcomes, uh, how do you envisage training those therapists to you know to be more deliberate in the way they practice their therapies yeah great i think what that often looks like is role play scripting watching videos so for and this is a i'll I'll share just a fun fact here um the research tells us that um, therapeutic alliance is the single biggest predictor of therapeutic outcome but there's five missing words in what I just said there. Therapeutic alliance as rated by the client is the single biggest predictor of therapeutic outcome. Therapeutic alliance as rated by the clinician does not correlate with therapeutic alliance as rated by the client and does not predict outcome. So what we believe that we see as therapeutic alliance is not necessarily what predicts outcome. We know we often can't get client view of this so the the gold standard is client rating of therapeutic alliance Mm -hmm. the silver standard dependent rater so a supervisor should be able to watch your video and more accurately see when are you having empathic glitches with your client versus when are the two of you in the flow and in the moment and really kind of connecting and uh, in rapport together with each other So what I would probably say is that a supervisor should be watching those videos, identifying those moments, and then we work on them. We should be role-playing them. We should be scripting them. We should be, how would you like to do that moment differently or better? It sounds like a combination of things to me. It sounds like rich learning. It sounds like a little bit of torture. (laughs) You know, Because we all love videos, right? Yeah, we all love a good video of ourselves, any kind of... Any, when I was doing my schema therapy supervision, I felt a lot. It was a lot of a uh, nervous system activation, and when I was being having my my videos p- played back to me, it was most powerful learning experience I've ever had. But I'm I'm wondering about moving on from that. Wondering about um, the in session rating. You know, talking about how it's difficult to get that alliance rating from a client. Mm. From, yeah, session, and you know, Miller talks about that session rating scale which yep. is not so much i don't i'm not familiar with an alliance one does he have an alliance one as well the the session rating scale is is, is what he would use as an alliance measure yeah so i'm aware that uh, I, look i'd have to tell you my, my little story if you don't mind I listeners yeah, don't mind I, when miller came to adelaide some years ago um 2018 i think if i'm right as a keynote and um i was sitting in his keynote address and um i wasn't the chair of the conference but i was uh, you know, had a significant role and 
I wasn't paying much attention, I must to say, in the keynote. But at one point he showed a video of a master therapist working and the master therapist during the course of the session gave the client the rating scale and then the client filled it out and then handed it back. And, the, and then there was a five-minute discussion about the ratings or the, uh, and, you know, some apologies or, or just some, oh, how are we going to do better next time and thank you for the feedback and I'm yep. glad, you know, all that kind of thing. And I, that has never, that has stuck with me all these years. No clue what else the man said, but that <laughs> video of that little bit of feedback, how different, the difference that it made both to the client and to the therapist because the, I mean, the client gave strong feedback, the therapist took it on board, wasn't defensive, was grateful, yep. made a change, played for the plan for the future, yes. And that seemed to me to be... Uh, uh, we're talking about, you know, being deliberate in the way this particular master therapist operated. Absolutely. And and that is mm. that is part of deliberate practice is actually being mm. open to, and I'll, I'll, steal a, I'll steal a Scott Miller line here, which I'm sure he stole from someone else. Um, feedback is a gift. Okay. If, if mm, someone yeah. tells you something that you're bad at on something that you value, then feedback is a gift. No one walks up to Lewis Hamilton after a um, Formula One race and says, oh, mate, you know, I just need to say, you know, you look really great wearing a Rado watch and we think you're a really good driver, but, you know, you maybe, maybe you could just, you know, get your foot on the gas a little bit sooner in the straight. Like if you tell someone how to win a race, that's a gift. You don't need to yeah. sugarcoat. Um, and we need to move away from, and, and I liked the the example that you gave earlier, like that undergraduate thing where people expect HDs. Um, yeah. Actually, that's completely the wrong way of thinking about it. We need to be going in hungry for feedback, mm. both from our clients and our supervisors, um, with the expectation that they're going to see things that we're bad at or that we haven't developed yet that we can improve on, not because they're mean to us or they want to, you know. Yes. Hurt, hurt our feelings or our self-esteem or whatever, but because we want to be good at them. Indeed. And in just wrapping up, I have to say that I have no idea who Lewis Hamilton is, or I think though he has good teeth. Is that right? <laughs> Drives cars very fast. <laughs> Drives cars very fast. Okay. Um, but that's a bit of an aside. Um, so any parting, you know, parting final comments that you'd like to share with our listeners? Look, I, I guess the, the final thought, and I was, I was really interested, the, the listeners obviously won't see the visuals of this, but I was, I was fascinated to see your face um, as you talked about the idea of video and the, the mix of horror and indignation. And I know um, that that's a feeling that a lot of us have about this idea of doing role play, doing video. But I guess the thought that I'd leave you with is it could be worse. You could be training to be a GP and have to slice recently thawed peas out of a pig's ear in front of 50 of your colleagues. <laughs> um, 50 times or something, you know, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's not so bad. It's not so bad. It's just a mindset shift. And we can use the same skills about shifting our mindset and our cognitions on ourselves that we do with our clients all the time. Beautiful. So, Will, thanks so much for your time. Um, so to our listeners, I uh, know that Aaron, we'll put some information about Aaron's book up on the page. And um, is it okay if you help us out with some articles that you mentioned yeah, up on the course. page? And, and I'll be seeing you in Adelaide for the APS thingy, Clinical College, College Conference. What are you going to be doing there for us? Uh, this this. Yeah, this this uh, podcast is actually a prequel, so I'll be presenting all of the material from today in a more 
uh, structured and thought out order. So in a workshop, I believe if I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a, a half day half day workshop. Fantastic! I'm going to pr- planning on heading to that workshop. A bit of a reminder to people to uh, don't forget to if you're going to that conference to put your name down for workshops. Oh yeah, sign up for the workshops now. I, I saw a reminder recently; they're filling up fast. Yes. So if podcast comes out in a reasonable time frame, sign up now. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again for your time and wish you all the very best. No worries. Thanks, Lisa. Really appreciate the invite. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Clinically Thinking. I invite you to follow our Facebook page where you'll find more information about our guests and references to the resources mentioned in this show as well as advance notice of upcoming shows. If you enjoy what we do, please share it with your colleagues or leave a review on your podcast player so others know what to expect. We'll be back soon with more interviews with leading practitioners in the wide world of clinical psychology. Bye for now.